Chapter Five of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter Five: The Deep Sea Soundings. When a landsman born far away among the mountains, comes down to the coast and stands for the first time on the shore of the sea, it excites in him a feeling of awe and wonder, not unmingled with terror. There it lies, a level surface, with nothing that lifts up its head like a peak of its native hills. And yet it is so vast, stretching away to the horizon, and all over the sides of the round world, with its tides and currents that sweep from the equator to the pole, with its unknown depths and its ceaseless motion, that it is to him the highest emblem of majesty and of power, a not unworthy symbol of God himself. In proportion to its mystery is the terror which hangs over it. A vague dread always surrounds the unknown, and what so unknown as the deep, unfathomable sea. For thousands of years the sails of ships, like winged birds, have skimmed over it, yet it has remained the one thing in nature beyond alike man's knowledge and his power. Man marks the earth with ruin, his control stops with the shore. And the little that has been known of the ocean has been chiefly of its surface, of the winds that blow over it, and the waves that are lifted up on high. We knew somewhat of its tides and currents as observed in different parts of the earth. We saw off our coast the great Gulf Stream, that steady flow of water so mighty and mysterious which, issuing out of the tropical regions, poured its warm current sixty miles broad right through the cold waters of the North Atlantic and sweeping round sent the airs of a softer climate over all the countries of western Europe. Old voyages told us of the trade winds that blew across the Pacific, and of terrible monsoons in China and Indian seas. But all that did not reveal what was going on a hundred fathoms below the surface. These old sailors had marvelous tales of Indian pearl-divers who, holding their breath, plunged to the depth of a few hundred feet, but they came up half dead, with but little to tell except of the frightful monsters of the deep. The diving bell was let down over sunken wrecks, but the divers came up with only tales of riches and ruin, of gold and gems and dead men's bones that lay mingled together on the deep sea floor. Was the bottom of the sea all like this? Was it a vast realm of death, the sepulchre of the world? No man could tell us. Poets might sing of the caves of ocean, but no eye of science had yet penetrated those awful depths which the storms never reach. It is indeed marvellous how little was known, up to a very recent date, of the true character of the ocean. Navigators had often tried to find out how deep it was. When lying becalmed on a tranquil sea, they had amused themselves by laying down a long line, weighted with a cannonball, to see if they could touch bottom. But the results were very uncertain. Sometimes the line ran out for miles and miles, but whether it was all the while descending, or was swayed hither and thither by mighty undercurrents, could not be known. But this true character of the ocean it was necessary to determine, before it could be possible to pass the gulf of the Atlantic. What was there on the bottom of the sea where the cable was to find its resting place? Was that ocean bed a wide level plain, or had it been heaved up by volcanic forces into a hundred mountain peaks, with many a gourd and precipice between? Such was the character of a part of the basin of the ocean. Here and there, all over the globe, are islands like the peak of Tenerife, thrown up in some fierce bursting of the crust of our planet, that shoot up in tremendous cliffs from the sea. Who shall say that the same cliffs do not shoot down below the waves a thousand fathoms deep? And might there not be such islands which did not show their heads above the surface, 
lying in the track between Europe and America, or perchance a succession of mountain ranges, over which the cable would have to be stretched, and where hanging from the heights it would swing with the tide, till at last it snapped and fell into the abyss below. Such at least were possible dangers to be encountered, and it was not safe to advance a step till the basin of the North Atlantic was explored. The progress of invention, so rapid on land, at length found a way of penetrating the sea, and even of turning up its bottom to the gaze of men. To measure the depth with something like mathematical accuracy, an instrument was introduced, known among nautical men as Massey's Indicator, the method of which is very clearly explained in an article which appeared in one of the New York papers, The Times, on the deep-sea soundings made for the Atlantic Telegraph. The old system is with a small line, marked at distances of one hundred fathoms, and with a weight of thirty or fifty pounds, the depth being told by the length of line run out. This is, of course, the most natural apparatus to suggest itself, and has been in use from the earliest ages. Experience has given directions for its use, avoiding some of the grosser causes of error from driftage and other causes. Yet its success in immense ocean depths is problematical and a problem decided in the negative by many of the first scientific authorities at home and abroad. In the mechanical improvements of the last half-century, substitutes for this simple but rather uncertain method began to be devised. It was proposed to ascertain the depth by the amount of pressure, or by explosions under water, with other equally impracticable plans. At last was noticed the perfect regularity of the movements of a spirally shaped wheel on being drawn through the water. Experiments proved that this regularity, when unaffected by other causes, could be relied on with perfect accuracy, and that an arrangement of cogwheels would register its revolutions with mathematical precision. Very soon it came in use as a ship's log. So perfect was their precision that they were even introduced in scientific surveys. Base lines, where the nicest accuracy is required, were run with them, and we have the highest authority of the Royal Navy for believing that they never failed. At this point it was proposed to apply them in a perpendicular as well as in a horizontal motion through the water. Massey's apparatus, promising to solve those problems of submarine geography left unsolved by the old method of attaining depth with a simple line and sinker, and this more especially as some causes of error, considerable on the surface, disappear in the still water below. To make our knowledge of the sea complete, one thing more was wanting, a method not only of reaching the bottom, but of laying hold of it, and bringing it up to the light of day. This was now to be supplied. It is the inventive genius of a lieutenant of the United States Navy, Mr. J. M. Brooke, that the world owes the means of finding out what is at the bottom of the sea. This is by a very simple contrivance, by which the heavy weight used to sink the measuring line is detached as soon as it strikes the bottom, leaving the line free so that it can be drawn up lightly and quickly to the surface without danger of breaking. Below the weight, and driven by it into the ooze, is a rod, in which is an open valve, that now closes with a spring, by which it catches a cup full of the soil, which is thus brought up to the surface, to be placed under the microscope, and be subjected to the sharp eye of science. With this simple instrument, the skillful seaman explores the bottom of the ocean by literally feeling over it. With a long line he dives to the very lowest depths, while the clasp at the end of it is like the tip of the elephant's trunk serving as a delicate finger with which he picks up sand and shells that lie strewn on the floor of the deep. What important conclusions are derived from this inspection of the bottom of the sea is well stated by Lieutenant Maury in the letter already quoted. In happy concurrence with this, as an additional preparation, a personal survey of the Atlantic had been made the very year before this enterprise was begun, in 1853. 
Lieutenant Berryman was the first who applied this new method of taking deep-sea soundings to that part of the Atlantic lying between Newfoundland and Ireland, with results most surprising and satisfactory. But to remove all doubt, it seemed desirable to have a fresh survey. To obtain this, Mr. Field went to Washington and applied to the government in behalf of the company for a second expedition. The request was granted, and the Arctic, under command of the same gallant Lieutenant Berryman, was assigned to this service. He sailed from New York on the 18th of July, 1856, and the very next day Mr. Field left on the Baltic for England to organize the Atlantic Telegraph Company. The Arctic proceeded to St. John's, and thence with a clear eye and a steady hand, this true sailor went sounding on his dim and perilous way across the deep. In about three weeks he made the coast of Ireland, having carried his survey along the great circle arc, which the telegraph was to follow as the nearest path from the old world to the new. The result fully confirmed his belief of the existence of a great plateau underneath the ocean, extending all the way from one hemisphere to the other. I cannot take leave of the name of this gallant officer, who rendered such services to science and to his country, without a word of tribute to his memory. Lieutenant Berryman is in his grave. He died in the navy of his country, worn out by his devotion to her service. When the great civil war broke out, he was placed in a position most painful to a man of large heart, who loved at once his country and the state in which he was born. He was a southerner, a native of Winchester, Virginia, and was assigned to duty in the south. At the first attack on southern forts and arsenals, he was in command of the Wyandotte in the harbor of Pensacola in Florida. His officers, who were nearly all southerners, were in secret sympathy with the rebellion. All the influences around him, both on ship and on shore, were such as might have seduced a weaker man from his loyalty. But to his honor, he never hesitated for a moment. He stood firm and loyal to his flag. Not knowing whom to trust, he had to keep watch day and night against surprise and treachery. It was the testimony of Lieutenant Slemmer, then in command of Fort Pickens, that but for the ceaseless exertions of Lieutenant Berryman, not only the ship but the fort would have been lost. But this service to his country cost him his life. His constant exertions brought on a brain fever, of which he died. His wife, also a native of Winchester, when the war came near her early home, removed to Baltimore, saying that she would not live under any other flag than that under which her husband had lived and died. It was to the honor of the American Navy to have led the way in these deep-sea soundings. But after this second voyage of exploration, Mr. Field applied to the British Admiralty to make what further soundings might be necessary between Ireland and Newfoundland, and to verify those made by Lieutenant Berryman. It was in response to this application that the government sent out the following year a vessel to make still another survey of the same ocean path. This was the steamer Cyclops which was placed under Lieutenant Commander Joseph Damon of the British Navy, an officer who had been with Captain Sir James Ross when he made his deep-sea soundings in the South Atlantic in 1840, where he attained a depth of 2,667 fathoms, and who, by his intelligence and zeal, was admirably fitted for the work. To speak now of this third survey is anticipating in time, but it will serve the purpose of unity and clearness in the narrative, to include all these deep-sea soundings in one chapter. He was directed to proceed to the harbor of Valentia in Ireland, and thence to follow, as nearly as possible, along the arc of a great circle to Newfoundland. The soundings for the first few miles from the coast should be frequent, decreasing as you draw offshore. These orders were thoroughly executed. Every pains was taken to make the information obtained precise and exact. 
Whenever a sounding was to be taken, the ship was hove to, and the bow kept as nearly as possible in the same spot, so that the line might descend perpendicularly. This was repeated every few miles until they had got far out into the Atlantic, where the general inequality of the depths rendered it necessary to cast the line only every twenty or thirty miles. Thus the survey was made complete, and the results obtained were of the greatest value in determining the physical geography of the sea, and confirmed in general those of Lieutenant Berryman. Though in comparing the charts prepared by the two, we observe some differences which ought to be noticed. Both agree as to the general character of the bottom of the sea along this latitude, that it is a vast plain like the steppes of Siberia. Yet on the chart of Damon, the floor of the sea seems not such a dead level as on that of Berryman. This may be partly owing to a difference of route, as Damon passed a little to the north of the track of Berryman. There are more unequal depths, which in the small space of a chart appear like hills and valleys. Yet when we consider the wide distances passed over, these inequalities seem not greater than the undulations on our western prairies. This space, says Damon, has been named by Maori the telegraphic plateau, and although by multiplying the soundings upon it, we have depths ranging from 1,450 to 2,400 fathoms, these are comparatively small inequalities in its surface and present no new difficulty to the project of laying the cable across the ocean. Their importance vanishes when the extent of the space over which they are distributed, 30 degrees of longitude, is considered. According to Berryman and Damon both, the ocean in its deepest part on this plateau measured but 2,003 or 400 fathoms, or about 14,000 feet, a depth of but little over two and a half miles. This is not great compared with the enormous depths in other parts of the Atlantic. Footnote A. The ocean bed of the North Atlantic is a curious study, in some parts furrowed by currents, in others presenting banks, the accumulations perhaps of the debris of these ocean rivers during countless ages. To the west, the Gulf Stream pours along in a bed from one mile to a mile and a half in depth. To the east of this, and south of the Great Banks, is a basin, eight or ten degrees square, where the bottom attains a greater depression than perhaps the highest peaks of the Andes or Himalayas. Six miles of line have failed to reach the bottom. Taking a profile of the Atlantic Basin in our own latitude, we find a far greater depression than any mountain elevation on our own continent. Four or five Alleghanies would have to be piled on each other, and on them added Fremont's Peak, before their point would show itself above the surface. Between the Azores and the mouth of the Tagus, this decreases to about three miles. End footnote. Yet that it is something may be realized from the fact that if the peak of Tenerife were here cast into the sea, it would sink out of sight, island, mountain, and all, while even the lofty head of Mont Blanc would be lifted but a few hundred feet above the waves. The only exception to this uniform depth lies about two hundred miles up the coast of Ireland, where within a space of about a dozen miles the depth sinks from five hundred and fifty to seven hundred and fifty fathoms. In fourteen degrees, forty-eight minutes west, says Damon, we have five hundred and fifty fathoms of rock, and in fifteen degrees six minutes west, we have seventeen hundred and fifty fathoms of ooze. This is the greatest dip in the whole ocean. In little more than ten miles of distance, a change of depth occurs, amounting to seventy-two hundred feet. This is indeed a tremendous plunge from the hard rock into the slime of the sea. The same sharp declivity was noticed by Berriman, and has been observed in the several attempts to lay the cable. Thus, in the second expedition of 1858, as the Agamemnon was approaching the coast of Ireland, we read in their report of her voyage, 
About five o'clock in the evening, the steep submarine mountain which divides the telegraphic plateau from the Irish coast was reached, and the sudden shallowing of the water had a very marked effect on the cable, causing the strain on and the speed of it to lessen every minute. A great deal of slack was paid out to allow for inequalities which might exist, though undiscovered by the sounding line. This submarine mountain was then regarded as the chief point of danger in the whole bed of the Atlantic, and as the principal source of anxiety in laying a cable across the ocean. Yet, after all, the ascent or descent of less than a mile and a half in ten miles is not an impassable grade. More recent soundings reduce this still farther. Captain Hoskins of the Royal Navy afterwards made a more careful survey of this precipitous sea bottom, and with results much more favorable. The side of the mountain, it is now said, is not very much steeper than Holborn Hill in London or Murray Hill in New York. Footnote B. The results obtained are thus summed in the London Times. The dangerous part of this course has hitherto been supposed to be the sudden dip or bank which occurs off the west coast of Ireland, where the water was supposed to deepen in the course of a few miles from about 300 fathoms to nearly 2,000. Such a rapid descent has naturally been regarded with alarm by the telegraphic engineers, and this alarm has led to a most careful sounding survey of the whole supposed bank by Captain Damon, acting under the instructions of the Admiralty. The result of this shows that the supposed precipitous bank or submarine cliff is a gradual slope of nearly sixty miles. Over this long slope the difference between its greatest height and greatest depth is only eighty-seven hundred and sixty feet, so that the average incline is, in round numbers, about one hundred and forty-five feet per mile. A good gradient on a railway is now generally considered to be one in one hundred feet, or about fifty-three in a mile so that the incline on this supposed bank is only about three times that of an ordinary railway. In fact, as far as soundings can demonstrate anything, there are few slopes in the bed of the Atlantic as steep as that is Holborn Hill. In no part is the bottom rocky, and with the exception of a few miles, which are shingly, only ooze, mud, or sand is to be found. End footnote. But the best answer to fears on this point is the fact that in 1857, 1858, and 1865, the cable passed over it without difficulty. In 1857, the Niagara was a hundred miles farther to sea when the cable broke. In 1865, the strain was not increased more than a hundred pounds. In the final expedition, that of 1866, this declivity was passed over without difficulty or danger. Next to the depth of the ocean, it was important to ascertain the nature of its bottom. What was it? A vast bed of rock? the iron-bound crust of the globe hardened by internal fires in which bending as a vault over the still glowing center of the earth bore up on its mighty arches the weight of all the oceans or was it mere sand like the sea-floor or ooze as soft as that of a mill-pond the pressure of a column of water two miles high would be equal to that of four hundred atmospheres would not this weight alone be enough to crush any substance that could reach that tremendous depth these were questions which remained to be answered but on which depended the possibility of laying a cable at the bottom of the Atlantic. By the ingenious contrivance of Lieutenant Brooke, the problem was solved, for we got hold of fragments of the undercoating of the sea, and to our amazement, instead of finding the ocean bound with rock with thick ribs of granite, its inner lining was found to be soft as a silken vest. The soil brought up from the bottom was not even of the hardness of sand or gravel. It was mere ooze, like that of our rivers and was as soft as the moss that clings to old damp stones on the river's brink. At first it was thought by Lieutenant Berryman to be common clay, but being carefully preserved and subjected to a powerful microscope, 
It was found to be composed of shells too small to be discovered by the naked eye. This was a revelation of the myriad forms of animated existence which fill the sea, a plenitude of life that is more wonderful by contrast. As Maury well puts it, the ocean teems with life, we know. Of the four elements of the old philosophers, fire, earth, air, and water, perhaps the sea most of all abounds with living creatures. The space occupied on the surface of our planet by the different families of animals and their remains are inversely as the size of the individual. The smaller the animal, the greater the space occupied by his remains. Take the elephant and his remains, or a microscopic animal and his, and compare them. The contrast as to space occupied is as striking as that of the coral reef or island with the dimensions of the whale. The graveyard that would hold the corallines is larger than the graveyard that would hold the elephants. Footnote C. Physical Geography of the Sea. End footnote. These little creatures, whose remains were thus found at the bottom of the ocean, probably did not live there, for there all is dark and shells, like flowers, need the light and warmth of the all-reviving sun. It was their sepulchre, but not their dwelling-place. Probably they lived near the surface of the ocean, and after their short life, sunk to the tranquil waters below. What a work of life and death had been going on for ages in the depth of the sea! Myriads upon myriads! ever since the morning of creation had been falling like snowflakes till their remains literally covered the bottom of the deep equally significant was the fact that these shells were unbroken not only were they there but preserved in a perfect form organisms the most minute and delicate fragile as drooping flowers had yet sunk and slept uninjured the same power which watches over the fall of a sparrow had kept these frail and tender things and after their brief existence had laid them gently on the bosom of the mighty mother for their eternal rest. The bearing of this discovery on the problem of a submarine telegraph was obvious, for it too was to lie in the ocean bed, beside and among these relics that had so long been drifting down upon the watery plain. And if these tiny shells slept there unharmed, surely an iron cord might rest there in safety. There were no swift currents down there, no rushing waves agitated that sunless sea, there the waters moved not, and there might rest the great nerve that was to pass from continent to continent, and so far as injury from the surrounding elements was concerned, there it might remain, whispering the thoughts of successive generations of men, till the sea should give up its dead. End of chapter 5 Recording by Alex C. Talander www.bookbanter.net